And I always think that being honest and transparent and telling the truth and telling people how it is, is the best way to deal with stuff. Because, because if you try to gloss it over, it will probably come back on you like a boomerang. And if you mislead people, that's just going to take you to a really bad place. So no one can ever criticise you or tell you you're wrong for being honest and straight and transparent because the situation, it is what it is, right? And you've just got to do it. So I always think honesty, clarity, transparency are really important principles. From Positive Momentum, this is Meet the CEO, a show that takes you behind the scenes of the working lives of people who've reached what some might call the pinnacle of the career ladder. I'm Matt Crabtree, the founder of Positive Momentum, and on today's show we meet Steve Paintman, the CEO of Streambank, a new specialist bank that's been founded to serve property and savings customers and is currently progressing through the final mobilisation phase of the regulatory approval process for a UK banking licence. The team at Streambank have chosen to be what they call deliberately human in their approach and intend to demonstrate their customer centricity by placing humans at the centre of every communication. Now, we first met Steve nearly 15 years ago when he was a senior executive at NatWest and RBS, before having the privilege to support his teams at Santander when he was an executive director and head of UK banking, then at Shawbrook Bank and later at Hodge Bank, where in both organisations he was CEO. Today, Steve also serves as a non-executive director at Bank of Ireland Group and was also elected as president of the Chartered Banker Institute in June 2021. I started out, as we always do on Meet the CEO, by asking Steve why he became a CEO. That's a really good question. Um, I think when you're younger, you, you aspire to positions of management because they seem to be the, the objectives that you should set for yourself. And, and, and I was brought up in an era where you did management development courses and, and you learned how to be a leader. Um, but as I think with a lot of careers, I became a CEO through a series of things that happened to me on my career journey, rather than I'm targeting that particular job or that particular. I think careers are very much about luck um, and, and opportunity. And, and Antonio Hultorosario, who I worked with uh, at Santander, and who, who took me into Santander, when people used to say to him, you're lucky, although he's not been quite so lucky recently, but, um, but when people used to say to him, you're lucky, he used to say, well, you've got to be in the position to take advantage of the opportunity. And I, I think that's, that's right. I mean, my career has been, has been littered with restructurings and reorganisations where everyone around me seems to have left and I still seem to be there. And, and suddenly I'm doing a bigger job. Um, and, and that happened at RBS and, and that happened at, at Santander. And, and, then, and then the actual job I applied for was, was the CEO of Shawbrook. Um, I think I applied for it. I, I, I think I was like headhunted by Pond Street Capital rather than applied for it. But, but nevertheless, that was the job that, would you like this job? Yes, I would. Um, and, and I became CEO of Shawbrook, which, which I did for three years. So it's a little like, you know, the, the comments that Boris Johnson made when he, when he was no longer prime minister, which was, it's the best job in the world. And, and, and it is the best job in the world because, because whilst it's not without pressure and not without challenge and, and it's relentless, it's a real opportunity. It's the only opportunity to make a difference and, and to make get things done and to shape things and to and and, and to deliver on the things that you, you believe are right for the company. So I, I I do think it is an incredibly hard job, but it is the best job in the world if you get to do it. 
It's really nice to hear. I mean, and now you're CEO of a kind of startup. How's that different to what you've done before? It's incredibly refreshing because when you when you take on a CEO role in an established organization, you are taking on an organizational structure. Um, you're taking on a business position. You are, you know, you, you're dealt a hand of cards and it's up to you as to how you best play those cards. And generally, particularly if you're running a division in a large bank, you're, you're broadly told, you know, don't, don't break this, right? <laughs> Give it back at the end. Um, and, and, and when you're building something from scratch, you can make all of those decisions because it's a blank piece of paper. So you decide on the organization you want it to be. You decide on the technology you're going to have, the infrastructure, the operational platform, where you're going to locate the offices, who you're going to hire. Um, and it's, 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 it's so exciting and so refreshing. I can see why entrepreneurs really enjoy it. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm so lucky that in my career, I've run really big organizations. And, and actually, I've, I've run really small organizations. And this is a small organization. Um, and, and the buzz you get from it is exactly the same exactly the same um and watching something that doesn't exist become something is just an incredible experience it is and and watching people grow as the organization grows i mean it's so it's a real buzz it's, it's i'm really enjoying it and i and and if someone had said to me that you know in your 60th year you would be building a bank from scratch i would say you've got to be joking um but i'm kind of glad i am yeah, I mean, you can see, I, you know, I can see you, which our listeners can't, but I can see how energised you are. But I mean, you're always energised. It is always obvious uh, that you love what you're doing. But I think one of the things sometimes people don't always know about financial services is as a leader in financial services, when you're kind of market facing as you've been throughout most of your career, you have spent so much time with entrepreneurs, you've funded so many different kinds of businesses. And I think what people don't always realize is you can kind of put all those experiences together. And I think a lot of what I've observed you doing, I listen to you telling stories about businesses you've funded over the years and lessons you've learned from those entrepreneurs, those kind of uh, evangelists and visionaries. And it's really great to see that you're able to bring all that to bear in what you're doing right now. It's it's such a pleasure to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're right. I, I think that entrepreneurs are in, incredible people. I mean, they've got some interesting characteristics, many of them. Um, and um, Indeed. But, but actually, it's those characteristics that probably make them a success. I think what you accumulate over, over a number of years is, is a collection of experiences some of which are good and some of which are not so good. And you learn from both. Um, and, and you become a better leader as a consequence of learning from those experiences. And, and people will often say to you, well, would you do anything different? And, and actually, I'm not sure I would. I mean, there are some things that I, I wish had maybe turned out slightly different. But, but ultimately, I think you learn from everything. It, you know, I think back to, you know, uh, the... The fraud we had at Shawbrook shortly after Brexit, when you know the share price, which had been you know roughly the IPO price of two ninety, I remember standing in the office watching it go from two ninety to one nineteen, and thinking to myself, I, I wonder when it's going to stop because there's nothing I could do to stop it, and the market would effectively settle. And and this feeling of helplessness while you're watching this is is not something that I would want to repeat again in a hurry, but. 
once it stabilizes, you you have to get on with the rebuilding process because it is what it is. It, it is where it is, and you've just got to get on with putting it back to where where it should be. Yeah. And and I think you 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 learn resilience, and and you learn resilience from from a number of experiences. But also, I think you learn a lot about management. You know, I've, I've worked with some incredibly talented leaders, and I've worked with some incredibly difficult people, and and I've been really interested in what makes someone a, an all-round success and what makes someone maybe a success in a particular discipline and not so good in others. And also how you build teams of people that complement each other. And that, I think you learn well, that from business. Well, we're going to come to all of those um, questions in a minute, but let me come to my sort of second regular question and then let's get into those challenges, those people who've influenced you and, and how to build teams. Steve, day to day, um, you know, I've known you for a long time, known, known you for more than 10 years, but I, I'm not sure I'm slightly ashamed to say I probably don't know the answer to this question, which is what part of your day is really sacrosanct to you? Do you have a structure to your day or your week where you say that part of the way I operate sort of almost doesn't matter who wants me, I protect that? I do now. I didn't used to. I mean, I, I think, I think, I think that, when you're younger and you are progressing, you probably sacrifice too many things and, and you don't realize you're doing it at the time. Um, and it's only with the benefit of hindsight that you realize, oh, I missed that. And I, I wish I hadn't missed that or I wasn't there for this or I wasn't there for that. Um, so I'm now conscious in as much as that, that I've got, I'm not planning on having any more children. So the ones I've got are the, are the ones that I need to work with, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very conscious now that if, if there's a football match that one of my kids are in or a hockey match or or a school event, I will make the time to go to that. And I will now say to people, I'm, I'm not around for three hours, but I'll pick up my emails or I'll pick up calls at 5.30 or 6 o'clock or whenever else it is. And, and, and I used to be scared of doing that because I felt that I was letting people down. And, and I think technology, maybe the COVID uh period when actually people had to use technology and work from home and work in a different way allows you to do that these days but it's still a choice you have to make and and i think i didn't make that choice in my 30s or 40s and i i kind of regret it nothing i can do about it i i can correct it in my 50s so yeah i, I am much more if there are family things then they are important and, and i would also say that creating time for things you enjoy doing I'm not saying I don't enjoy work, but actually things that, that, that give you a real buzz gives you more energy and it gives you more, more get up and go. And it means that you can look at problems and challenges with renewed vigor and energy. Um, whereas I think if you just keep looking at the same problem, you just get exhausted. So I, I think there is actually an energizing effect of giving, of giving up that time as well. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? And it's very honest of you to say the sort of scared thing, because I'm sure some of our listeners who are maybe, you know, mid-career feel that. And as we stare down the barrel, I mean, we're, we're recording this in November. I suspect this will come out in, in the early part of 2023. So we are staring down the barrel right now and perhaps we'll be even more in economic difficult times. Do, do you, you know, you've been through a few economic cycles. Do you think senior leaders might let some of those things slip, the family focus, the doing things that you love focus, because they just keep looking at the interest rate they keep looking at gdp they keep looking at economic challenges hoping that somehow looking at it will make it get better 
I think I think there is a risk that when when the world is a more challenging place, that some of the things that that make us more rounded, we sacrifice. And I, I do think that. I, I, I remember years ago, one of my first difficult loan experiences um, was with the holiday company First Choice, um, and and we were in a number of banks all in the room with the CFO trying to sort of sort out the problems, and and. The CFO's son phoned up and asked him when he was coming home to play football, and and for me, I thought that was a real sort of brush with reality, right? Um, and and he took the call. He said, "I'm really sorry, I can't come home with my play of the weekend or something like that." And the banks in the room got really upset about how dare you take a call like this at this moment in time. Da 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 da. And I just kind of thought, you know, you've got to get a balance, right? You know that that there's a lot of things going on in this world around us, right? And, and, and actually, this is just a small part of that. Um, and, and we need to have balance and we need to think about the world in which we live in. We need to think about families. We need to think about the contribution that businesses make to society and all those sorts of things. And actually, we shouldn't let recession and some of the issues that we're currently going through detract from the fact that, that, that you know, we all have a contribution to make, whether it's to the business we're in or to our families or to the planet or whatever else it is, these things are important and we shouldn't let them slip. And I think it'll be really important that leaders demonstrate that in their businesses rather than you know, revert to crisis management and endless meetings and looking at problems. In my experience, you know, looking at a problem isn't going to fix it. Um, worrying about something. I often say to people, people say to me, you know, I worry about this and I worry about that. And I say, well, actually, I, you know, why? I don't pay you to worry. I pay you to to do something about it. Um, there's no point worrying about stuff. There's it's important to be aware, and then it's important to do something about it, whatever that may be. Very well said, um, Steve. The third of our questions is about challenging situations, and you've already uh, shared at least one, if not if not a few. You know, talked about watching a, a share price going into free fall. But when you think back across the you know the arc of economic cycles and different businesses that you've been part of what would be your sort of number one most challenging situation in the role of ceo so as a ceo and what did you take from it you've talked earlier about the learnings you get and the resilience that's required what's your number one one was it was it that day at shawbrook or or are there others that that are up there i mean i think the day at shawbrook you know with with the fraud and and the the share price in free fall and and and, 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 you know, the criticism that was levelled at the company through the media and through equity analysts was hard um, because actually it was a small team of people in a very isolated business who'd done some things they shouldn't have done, right? Um, and, 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 but I, I also think, you know, I was at Santander during the Spanish crisis. So Santander obviously being a Spanish bank had its financial crisis at a different time to the UK banks. So when the UK banks were having their difficulties, Santander was in, in good shape and the European sort of financial crisis came along slightly later. So by the time you know, Spain was being downgraded, the, the UK banks were not necessarily in great shape, but they were kind of out of the worst of it. So in many ways, that that was probably, I, if I had to pick a more challenge, the most challenging day of my career, I think that would be it. Yeah, the downgrade of Spain, um, which we had anticipated, but the lead headline on the news at 10 the night before was, you know, sort of like European financial risk hits the UK high street with a downgrade and there's something there. We'd only been downgraded one notch, but, but, but the headline, I mean, most people don't know what a 
credit rating is anyway. So it doesn't matter. What they're interested in is the bank in which I've got my savings has been downgraded and is on news at 10. What shall I do? Um, and, and I kind of knew when I saw that headline and I listened to the radio stations that morning that effectively there was going to be um, yeah, a lot of people going into Santander branches worried. Um, and and we would have a really difficult day ahead of us. And 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 you and, and you have that 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 balance between, you know, you need to manage the situation. You need to be able to kind of reassure the guys in the branches that it's okay. You need to make sure you've got all the resources, that you've got enough collateral at the Bank of England to deal with payments coming out of the system. But but so you control the controllables, but there's still a whole bunch of uncontrollables that, that you have no control over. Like, I can't control what the guy in the Daily Mail is saying. I can't control what's what's going out on the news. So, so you do have that that real challenge where you've got to show that you've got to reassure the people around you. You've got to show leadership. You've got to be calm. You've, even when your insides are churning over, you've got to not let it show. You've got to say, okay, we'll... Yeah, I remember there was a classic moment when it, when someone came in and and basically said we'd had a uh, a private banking customer withdraw a, a very large sum of money, but um, but but it subsequently turned out that actually they were withdrawing a slightly not such a large sum of money, and actually the number someone had been given was the reference number rather than the amount they were withdrawing. Actually, <laughs> to be you, I think that made the day a lot easier because that gave everyone a chance to laugh <laughs> with relief i think <laughs> but but I, <laughs> I i think that was a challenging day and, and i and i did some brave things that day that that were not in the in the playbook um you know i i contacted mark Kleiman of sky news to talk to him about the fact that santander was a uk bank his assets were in the uk it couldn't upstream funds to its Spanish parent without regulatory approval. Um, and Mark ran that story. Um, and that that proved to be a turning point in the day because it stopped the noise. And, and we, we also got asked by the BBC at the end, at the end of the day, you know, how much money had we lost in deposits that day? And there was obviously a lot of pressure on us not to give a number. But if we didn't give a number, they'd have made one up. So we ended up saying we lost 1% of our deposits, which was true which by the way is a lot of money right um but but, yeah. but actually that was reassuring to people because it was only one percent so it reminds me of the very first day we met actually i don't know if you remember but it, it was when you were at, at rps and you were uh, you and i met and and talked for probably slightly longer i think than your pa had, had arranged for and you were going to off to working lunch to be on working lunch that day <laughs> when that was uh, when that was a yeah. thing um, and you've always kind of lent in haven't you to that media communication because i i suspect some people listening to this who know you will be surprised you you haven't highlighted the the you know minor challenges that rbs faced um <laughs> in the financial crisis um but actually i remember you around that time just kind of leaning into it and kind of going well we have to work through this right yeah i look i think you do i mean i i working lunch with adrian charles was, was actually Okay, I remember a slightly more tricky experience of Andrew Neil, which was less fun, which was done at the time of the RBS rights issue, which were, unfortunately we were sponsoring a um, a conference for small businesses, and he was hosting it, and obviously the rights issue, and it, it was not a wasn't a fun day for for, for me, that's for sure. Um, but but ultimately, I, I think you have to you you have to face into these things, right? Um, whether we like it or not, we live in a world where where you know there is 
wall-to-wall media coverage and 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 that's not just you know paid media that's social media as well and, and therefore you you've got to accept that that's now if, as you're, if you're a ceo it's part of your world right and you've got to, you can't run away from it um and, and and i always think that being honest and transparent and telling the truth and telling people how it is is the best way to deal with stuff because because if you try to gloss it over it will probably come back on you like a boomerang and if you mislead people that's just going to take you to a really bad place so look, no one can ever criticize you or tell you you're wrong for being honest and straight and transparent because the situation it is what it is right and you've just got to do yeah. so i would think honesty clarity transparency are really important principles Good. Well, quite right. Well said, and I'm sure uh, you know listeners agree. But uh, sometimes doesn't always seem to be the case that those things manifest. There is some, some message management sometimes, but I think we are uh, we are quickly unlearning uh, that. So uh, yeah, long live clarity. Um, Steve, fourth of my questions. You've talked a little bit about those who've influenced you, but tell us a bit more. Who's most influenced the way you have ended up leading as a CEO? It's a really good question. I mean, I, I thought a little bit about it because because um, I knew you were going to ask me, and and I think it's a combination. I, I think that I try to engage with people who I think can give me different perspectives and different views, and and can. I think it's really important that you try to work with people who can hold a mirror up to you, because when we look in the mirror, we kind of look at we see what we want to see. Um, Whereas if somebody else gets you to look in the mirror, they'll point out to you the things that perhaps you should see rather than the things that you want to see. And, and I've worked with you know, your good self, um, but I've worked with other people like David Soul, for example, um, who was my coach at RBS. And, you know, and David and I are good friends, but I didn't look forward to his sessions at all, right? Um, because, because he would point out to me all the things that, that I could have done better. And he was absolutely right. Um, and I would say to him, oh, this has gone wrong this week, and da 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 and, yeah, this person's a moron, and da-da-da-da-da. And he'd go, but actually, what could you have done better? And I used to think, well, there's nothing I could have done better. And then he used to say, but think about it. And then actually, they're like, oh, I could have done that, and I could have done this, and I could have done the other thing, and da-da-da-da-da. And then suddenly you get to a point, you think, actually, well, do you know what? I didn't do very well, um, and I need to do better. And he was very good at that, and and and, and I suspect he still is. Um, he but, is. Um, but, but... So I've learned a lot from that, but you, you know, you've got to put yourself in that place, right? Because, because most people like to hear they're doing a great job and they're fantastic and all that kind of stuff. It's not so much fun to hear that actually you didn't do very well there um, and you didn't do this, but actually you need to hear it. So I think the people I've worked with, I've learned a lot from. If I had to pick somebody, then I would say Ian Robertson, who was the chief executive of uh, corporate banking and, and markets at uh, RBS. So and he was there when RBS took over NatWest. And, and you know, being taken over is not a fun experience, right? Um, it's, and, and particularly when it's your first time. Um, you, you're used to the infrastructure. You're used to the world around you. You know, you know where the pecking order is and, and, and your anchor points. And then suddenly a takeover happens and all of those anchor points disappear overnight. Um, and you'll be a whole bunch of people. And they've made a whole bunch of commitments to the city about what they're going to do to your business. And, and you're in the middle of it. Um, and, and it was very uncomfortable. But Ian put his arm around the guys from NatWest in the corporate banking area. And he made them feel at home. And he made them feel part of the family. And he had great judgment when he came to risk. He was very entrepreneurial, but he had good judgment. 
and and he would talk your language he wouldn't talk like a chief executive he would talk to you like like we're having a conversation incredibly down to earth guy incredibly smart achieved a huge amount so impressive as an individual but but for me the thing that i will always remember about ian was the warmth that he showed to us in coming into rbs and he made us feel at home and, and i that's that was a very special skill it really is that these um, mergers, acquisitions, I mean, that was clearly a, a, a huge one, but, you know, lots of organizations, you know, it's part of their, their scale up strategy, isn't it? And the ability to have warmth and to bring people and I have a particular uh, technology client in, in Belgium, actually, uh, the CEO was on the, the show a few episodes ago. And he's similarly fantastic at warmly welcoming people, irrespective of the circumstances of the acquisition, warmly welcoming people and helping them to feel that they've got a voice straight away, that they're not somehow the poor relations, but they are additive significantly. They add something to the organization it didn't have before, but it, it is it is a real talent. Steve, let's talk more about executive teams. You touched on it a little bit 10 minutes or so ago. Um, most of our work together, I've been very fortunate to be able to uh, be involved to some extent with how you've developed executive teams. And I know you've got some really strong views on what makes for an effective executive team. I'd love you to share those with our uh, listeners, if you would. I think that the, there's a temptation when you're a CEO that, that you... And we've seen this in politicians recently as well, which hasn't worked out particularly well, um, that you hire people who will agree with you because that's easier and, and generally who tell you what a great job you're doing. Um, and, and actually, that's the biggest mistake you can make because, because you know, you've got that job because you're good at A, B and C and you're probably not so good at D, E and F, right? And therefore, you need to surround yourself with people who are really good at D, E and F, right? So, so the job of the CEO is to build the best possible team. So you have to basically accept that you're going to hire people who are better than you in certain areas, right? And be comfortable with that. Um, and I think I've always looked at it on the basis that my job is to put the best team on the pitch um, and to win as many matches as I can. So I go out to look for the best strikers, the best midfielders, the best defenders, the best goalkeepers. Um, and, and I look for chemistry as well. So I, have they got, you know, I, I take it as read that they can do the job because by the time I'm meeting them, we've probably established that. So it's a question of how they do the job and how they'll interact with their colleagues and and, and whether you know they will they'll be a, they'll be additive to the team rather than maybe like Christian Ronaldo and be a bit more tricky, right? Um, and 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 I think that's important. So you've got to look for people who can complement the skill mix you have around you and who are going to be additive to the team. They could create the right chemistry uh, and want to be part of that organization and will be part of that organization um, with all the right values and the right culture and all the other bits and pieces. So I, I look for soft aspects. In it. When I'm interviewing someone, I'm looking to understand, you know, get to know the person, see how they work, what gets them motivated, what things they enjoy, what gets them up in the morning, how they think about problems. I'm, I'm, I never ask people about their technical skills i kind of assume that you know we've got to this point because they're good at what they do right but but being good at what you do is not enough i mean i've worked you know as, as both a board member and as, a, as an executive with people who on paper look brilliant at what they do but have the you know no interpersonal skills no ability to work with the team they're incapable of listening and just cause carnage um and you end up having a part company with them 
um, and invariably at that point, everyone says, oh, well, you know, you know, I always knew that would happen, right? And, and it was, which is kind of the least helpful thing. So I, I do think that it's about a, a team that works well together will outperform a team of superstars. And I think that's a really important point, um, which, which is why I support Everton and, and not Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> but they haven't won anything for years, right? <laughs> but, but, it's a, but it's a nice club, right? <laughs> well, I'm going to avoid football references, particularly as we're recording this just at the beginning of the World Cup. So by the time this comes out, the outcome of the World Cup will be known and who knows where that will uh, will go. I think that, that chemistry thing is such a, a good bit of advice. Those who know me well will know that I often recommend uh, senior leaders or even managers at any level read the Netflix book, which is called No Rules Rules. It's a fabulous book. And one of Netflix's principles, so they say, is no brilliant jerks. Yeah. And, um, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's a slightly sort of throwaway comment, but we know what they mean, right? And in an exec team, you can have, as you say, real superstars, but if they can't work effectively with their colleagues, you're actually almost better having somebody who's just perhaps maybe not quite as functionally amazing, but can integrate their activities um, with others. So, yeah, you, you're... You're a, a great catalyst um, for chemistry. I've been lucky to uh, sit at dining room tables and watch you doing that in various places. Uh, so, uh, yeah, great advice. Thank you. Just a couple more. I know you're pressed for time. Um, my penultimate question is probably a bit of a daft question, given that you are busy standing up a bank. Um, but what's the biggest change on your horizon, Steve? What is big in the next few months? Well, I think to get Stream Bank up and running i mean this, when you're building a bank you, you know you you spend a lot of time building infrastructure and, and building systems and processes and and hiring people and all this sort of stuff um but it's not real because because you have you have you, have, you know, you're not we can take deposits up to fifty thousand pounds in aggregate so not really earth shattering um but at the point you get your restrictions lifted you can take deposits from 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 anybody um and and I had this sort of mix of nervousness and excitement to see whether what we built will work <laughs> when, when real people interact with it. Um, there's no reason to assume it won't, right? But, 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 but nevertheless, I, I think it's always good to have that sense of nervousness alongside that sense of excitement. So, so I'll be really interested to see if, if, if everything that we, we built and tested and had audited and God knows what else um, does do what it says on the tin. There's no reason to assume it won't. So if anyone's listening to this and fancies bank putting a deposit with stream bank don't worry about it it'll be okay um but um but but yeah i mean that's that's my main priority i think my other priorities are that you know I, i've been working for 42 years now it'll be 43 come next year and and therefore you know i i will over the course of the next few years i think transist or have another stab at transisting from executive to non-executive life as, as, as you know i've had um a number of attempts at, at that particular transition um, and failed dismally every time. So for me, I think uh, setting Stream Bank off on the right course um, and then doing more advisory and non-executive stuff, you know, changing the balance over the next few years. Um, I think you do become more conscious as you get older that that, that there's more behind you than in front of you. And there are things that you want to do with the life in front of you 
that you kind of need to get on with. And 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 I'm very conscious that you know, increasingly bump into people who say, um, well, I thought I'd do that when I retired and then something happened and I didn't get to do it. So I, I'm, I'm lucky I've, I've had such a, you know, such a great career that I've been able to go to so many places in the world that I would never have dreamed of. But there's still a few, a few more that I'd like to see. Yeah, yeah, good for you. And I'm certain you will. And I, I, it sort of feels a little bit like, you know, standing up a bank from pretty much scratch um, is a is a pretty nice way to cap off uh, 42 years of career. And it might not have been something you'd ever have expected to have had the chance to do. So mm. must have been ir- irresistible. And and those of us that know you well are, are thrilled to see you doing it and are in, enjoying watching your energy and spirit with it. And of course, wish you masses of, and the team, masses of luck in the next few critical months. Steve, one, one last question. Um, some of the people who uh, subscribe to our podcast are people who are thinking about CEO in their future. And, and as you and many others have said, CEO uh, opportunities come upon you in all sorts of unpredictable ways. Anybody who think it might be in their future, three quick tips, three things perhaps you wish you'd known 20 years ago about uh, the path to CEO. I, I think the most important things that I've picked up I would say, uh, listen. Um, you know, there's a tendency that you think that that because you're the CEO, that people want to listen to you, and you need to lead the meetings and you need to give direction and all that sort of stuff. And but, and ultimately, you do have to make the final call that says we're going to do this or we're going to do that, right? But actually, I think listening is a really important CEO skill to, to listen to what other people say and to hear their perspectives and hear their views. I've, I've got better at that over the years. Um, but I think that's a really important skill um, for two reasons. One, I think you're not always right. And, and, it, and it would be good to find that out sooner rather than later. And secondly, um, you know, other people look at the world through a different prism and actually their prism might be the right prism to look at that particular problem through so i think listening is important is an important skill patience i would say is another one in other words you know stuff takes time right um markets move slowly um results are not instantaneous i mean the one two three account we launched at santander did nothing for six months nothing it's still you know it is the most successful current account launch in uk banking history but for six months it did not move um you know, nobody bought it, right? So you, you know, and there were times when, when people were tearing their hair out, particularly the Spanish, if I remember rightly, um, whose patients' thresholds are not particularly high. Um, but but the reality is, is is that you know it it just needed to get that traction. Um, so I think listening, patience, um, and I think honest. I'll come back to me being honest and clear and transparent, right? The reality is, and and if if nothing else, the politics of the last few years should have taught us this. If it happened, it happened. And if it happened, you have to deal with it. So pretending it didn't happen or or trying to make it go away isn't going to help. So just be realistic and face into the problem and use all of your energy to solve the problem. So I think listening, patience, and being honest. 
I love that. It's a fantastic way to finish our conversation because we we all, I think, would agree that in public life, be that you know commercial organisations or governmental organisations, we need more honesty. I slightly fear that many of those leaders don't see themselves as dishonest, but they are dishonest by omission, I think, is the point, is that they just, and I think some senior leaders just feel this inability to share the unvarnished truth, because you say if something's happened, it's happened. And you're better off saying it because people know anyway. It's not like you employ people who are not very well connected and are finding out information anyway. So you're better off leading the narrative than trying to follow it. And that's what's caught many of our public figures, I think. I think you're right. I think actually that's a good way to describe it. I think, you know, sometimes people will say to you, well, you don't need to say that, right? And, and actually, what you've got to say is, well, actually, if I want to lead the narrative, then I do need to say it. Um, and But people are often too persuaded by the fact that I don't need to do this, so I won't do it. And actually, at that point, you've lost control of the narrative. And I, I think you know, making sure you control the narrative, but with honesty and transparency, and if that means saying sorry, then that's OK, right? And I suspect that you know there are many politicians uh, who wish that perhaps they just put their hands up and said, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, right? It, it, it's the it's the protracted denials and and story weaving that ultimately undoes you. Absolutely, we all, we all make mistakes, right? Um, and and sometimes you just have to say, Do you know what, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. And yeah. and and I don't think there's anything wrong in that. Um, and I often say to people, particularly around boardrooms, when there's something gone wrong, I say, No, I should have been on that. I'm sorry, I wasn't. Even, even if actually I kind of know that that was down to someone else or what have you, it, it doesn't matter. The fact is, ultimately, as the CEO, I am responsible. So I say, no, nope, I should have been on that. I wasn't. I'm sorry. I will be. Well, what a fantastic note to um, end our conversation on. As ever, um, Steve, you and I, I think we've people who look after our diaries often get frustrated when you and I meet because <laughs> we talk for far too long. Um, uh, but it's always a joy talking to you. Thank you so much for being a guest. I've been so looking forward to having you um, on the show. And so I'm really, really delighted you're able to make some time. As I said a little while ago to you and the team at Stringbank, we wish you masses of success. Um, uh, really looking forward to seeing what you do uh, with this fine new organization um uh, but for now thanks so much for being here thanks matt i appreciate it from being taken over to spanish downgrades and from share price free falls and now to the nervousness slash excitement of leading a startup in his 60th year as you've heard, Steve has seen an enormous amount during his career and remains remarkably energised by his activities, just as he's always been. So many nuggets to mine in this episode, but I especially love the emphasis on being honest, clear and transparent, especially when the news isn't so great. Over the years, I've observed Steve engaging very openly with teams, stakeholders and even the media in ways that maybe have sometimes caused some surprise from those around him, but that have always ultimately resulted in much better outcomes. He's another CEO who openly acknowledges the role of luck in his ascent, but importantly, that you need to be in a position to take advantage of that luck when it appears and that these things won't just drop in your lap. Of course, I'm going to amplify the idea that a team that can work well together is much better than a team of functional superstars. And whilst of course that's easy to say, it's obviously much more difficult to manifest in the real world, so thank goodness for CEOs like Steve who work so hard to make that a reality every day in their worlds. 
Finally, having the vulnerability to let others hold a mirror up to you, the humility to sometimes say sorry, and the wisdom to listen to the opinion of others, well, it's not a bad formula for perhaps all of us to pay just a little bit more attention to. Many thanks, Steve, and of course, thanks to you for listening. If you're a new listener and you've enjoyed listening to Steve, then take a look at our past episodes, and of course, click that subscribe button on your platform of choice if you would be so kind. If you're a regular, thanks so much, and remember, if you get the chance to share the series with others, we'd be super grateful. Meantime, best wishes to you in all your endeavours and look forward to welcoming you to the next episode of Meet the CEO from Positive Momentum.